And then there have been, you know, there have been some brief moments where we've been where we've been allowed to see some things, and God's given us a perspective from heaven and so forth. But but for the most part, we we've we've kind of been in in, in this uh, almost like this wasteland, right? It's bad stuff. These bad people. These bad characters. Well, chapter eighteen is the last part of that. Chapter nineteen, man, we get to. Uh, we get to some glorious stuff beginning in chapter 19. So this is what it says in chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After this, John says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, like the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she, as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since her heart says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth, who committed sexual immorality and live in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, and all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men Sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. 
for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on the earth. Man, what a description, right? What a description. You know, today there's so much talk about identity. You know, identity, who am I? You know, 50, 60 years ago there was in psychology the identity crisis that teens went through or supposedly went through and they're trying to figure out who they are and work their way through that crisis. Today we hear about identity, we hear about critical theory, we hear about social justice, right? We hear about all this, all identity is politics, right? All of it's about identity politics these days, social constructs, societies constructs these identities and and, and see where you fit into these identities, male, female, white, black, brown, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, whatever else, right? Identity, identity, identity. Who in the world are we? How do we even figure it out? Are we American? Are we Western in the sense of Western civilization, not Eastern mindset? We are the world. We're all together as human beings. We we are the world. You remember that song back in the 80s? Identity. It all gets so confusing, doesn't it? But it's really pretty simple when you open the Bible and you start asking that question, who am I? It really starts to get pretty simple when you say, who am I? You remember when God revealed himself to Moses and Moses said in Exodus, who who do I say sent me? And he said, I am who I am. I am who I am. I'm God. Moses, and guess what? You're not. I am. You're not. I'm the self-existent one. Knowing who you are is a good thing, though. I mean, figuring out who you are is a good thing. Here's the thing. If you identify with being a Christian, if you identify with being a Christian, you say, you know what, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just for a minute, I want to take you back to something. Okay? Just for a brief moment. I want to take you back to your baptism. Now understand this, we're Baptists, and so we believe in believer's baptism by immersion, and, and, and so. but I, I want to take you back to your baptism just for a second. Because in that baptism, which is the first step of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, so if you're a believer and a follower of Christ, then the first step of obedience is, is to be baptized. But I want to take you back, because in a sense, that baptism, although it didn't save you, 
And baptism can't save you. But yet in one sense, your baptism was a marker. It was a marker. It was a marker in this way. Because when you were baptized, you were preaching the gospel. You were preaching the gospel. You were buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Not only were you preaching the gospel, but what you were doing is you were standing publicly and you were identifying with Christ. What you were saying is that I break with the past. I am no longer that. I am no longer that person. I am now a new person. And I break with that. And so it's a public declaration of you breaking away with that old past, that old way of thinking. That old way of thinking, that old way of living, that old way the the, the desires of the heart have been changed. And so you, you see why I say it's sort of a marker? It's sort of like you standing publicly declaring, I am now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? You remember, you remember that public confession of faith? Which I believe baptism is your public confession of faith. I mean, you stood. I stood. And said, I am now identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't used to identify with Him. But I am now. You with me? Let me ask you a question then. And I ask myself, I've I've struggled with this looking through this passage this whole week. Thinking back to that time. Thinking back to that moment. That public declaration that my identity now is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask this. Since that time, I don't know how long it was. I don't know, you know, may have been a long time, may not have been that long. But, But since that time, how intertwined, how mixed up has your way of life become with this world? See, I would imagine at that moment, man, I remember my baptism. Man, at that moment, is like, we're taking the world now. You know, if temptation would have come at me at that point, I'd, eh, no, you know. But over the years, what have I forgotten? Here's the question. And I ask this of my own heart. How compromised are we? How compromised are we? We don't like to think about that, do we? We don't like to go there, do we? But it's a legitimate question. And I think it's a question that gets raised from this passage. Just how compromised am I as a believer? 
Now, I know some would say, well, I mean, why even think like that? Why even, why even bother with that? I, I don't know. I don't know how compromised I am. Besides, that doesn't matter. I mean, all that matters is I'm not going to hell. I mean, all that matters is I'm, I'm saved from hell. What does all that other stuff matter? Why does that matter at all? I mean, come on, maybe, maybe at some point I said I would get serious about this other stuff, but, but at, least I, at least, you know, my sin's taken care of and I'm not going to hell and so forth. And um, So what's the big deal? Why can't I just escape hell and just ignore taking serious Christ being my Lord? I'll tell you why it's dangerous. Because maybe, just maybe, if that's our position, if that's the way we think, and that's the way I'm thinking, then just maybe I have believed a corruption of the gospel. And I never really was baptized. I just got wet in a religious ceremony. Maybe, maybe I've believed a corruption of the gospel that came to me and said something like, yeah, just get out of hell, man. It doesn't matter how you live after that. It doesn't matter what you do after that. Just to get that taken care of. Ah, there's plenty of time for that other stuff. Keep your finger here in Revelation 18. I want you to go to Luke just a second. I want you to go to Luke chapter 9. We're going to let Luke 9 launch us into Revelation 18. Luke 9. This is something that Christ says that... We need to understand what he's saying here in this passage. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He's speaking to the crowd. Okay? He's teaching, just like he would, and there's a crowd. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all. Now, you need to hear that. He said to everybody. So in other words, what he's about to say is for everybody. What he's about to say, he's not just speaking to the apostles. What he's about to say, he's not just saying for super saints. He is saying this to everybody. He is saying this to everybody that's listening to him. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me. Again, notice the language. Anyone wants to come after me. If anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to come to me, if anyone wants to come and publicly declare, I am a follower of Christ. Listen to what he says. Now keep in mind, again, he's, this, is just, this is not just for the apostles. This is not just for elders in a church or deacons in a church or Sunday school teachers in a church. This is not just for people who really want to get serious about their Christian faith. This is for any, anyone. If you're going to follow Christ, then guess what? Jesus says, let him deny himself. This is a life of denying self. It's not just self-denial. It's not just denying myself a few good pleasures. It's a life of literally dying to self. And take up his cross. Take up his cross, what? Daily. That's why I read Luke. 
Because Luke makes, make, adds daily here. So this is not like just this, this one time, take up your, but it's take up your cross daily. Live a life of self-denial daily. Take up your cross daily. What is taking up your cross? It's not carrying a few burdens. It is actually dying to yourself. I'm no longer going to trust myself. I'm trusting him. I'm dying to myself daily. And then notice what he says and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What is it? What is if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You want to follow Christ? then you're going to deny self, you're going to take up your cross daily, and you're going to follow him no matter where he leads. I will what? Go. Now this is Christianity 101. This is not saying, well, I think I'll just, you know, I'll get hell taken care of, and maybe later I'll get to this kind of stuff. That's a corrupt gospel that comes to you and says that. That's a corrupt gospel that comes to you and says, just get your ticket punched to heaven. And it doesn't matter after that. What is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? So back to my question, how compromised are you? Because just how compromised we are is the depth at which we are destroying our very own soul. And that's serious. It's serious. It's serious. Now look, I'm not your judge. I'm not, I'm not your judge. We're just fixing to open the Word of God and we're, we're fixing to take a look at some very hard things here. But it comes out of this Revelation chapter 18. So what do we do? What do we do? You say, I don't, man, maybe I am compromised. What do I do? Then you come out of her. Come out of her. What does that mean? Revelation 18. Revelation 18. We see in this chapter, there's a prophetic warning. There's also a very clear call here. And we're going to look at it in this light. We're going to look at it as two voices. There are the voices from heaven and then there are the worldly voices that are in this dirge. They're lamenting the fall of this one this great city, Babylon. Uh, chapter 16, the bowls are poured out, God's wrath, the final judgments happened. Then 17 and 18 are descriptions of this. We've already looked at 17. 17 carried more of this deceptive religious flavor in 17. 18, it's almost like this is the political and commercial deception that's happened. And it's all tied up with this Babylon. It's all tied up with this great city. So there's voices from heaven. There's a warning. There's also declaring victory here. You see two women. We see this woman here, but 19, we're introduced to another woman. And we're introduced to a glorious woman. Who is that? The bride of Christ. It's the church. We also, in a sense, see two cities here at the end. This city, Babylon, this fallen city, and then we see the heavenly city. We're about to get to all that. Been a long time coming since chapter 6, hadn't it? But we're about to get to it. And it will be shouting ground. It will be shouting time then. So there are the, here are these two voices. First, the heavenly voices. 
In verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, Then after, after this, I saw another angel. Here comes another angel. This angel's coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was lit up. Man, when this angel showed up, the earth was lit up. And it was lit up with his glory. I, I imagine that it's lit up with his glory because he's coming from the presence of God. And if he's been in the presence of the glory of God, then that glory must just be radiating off this angel. And so the whole earth is lit up. And listen what happens. He called out with a mighty voice. He calls out with a loud voice and he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon will be called the great, the mighty, the great city about seven times in this passage. So what's being set up is something that's falling here is something that the world considers to be great. The world considers to be invincible. The world considers to be untouchable. And yet the language of her fall, one day, one hour, swift, complete, and over. And the world mourns. So fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, just jot down somewhere. We won't take the time to go to it. But just jot down somewhere. Jeremiah 50 Jeremiah 51. And also jot down Ezekiel 27. Because this section, when, he, when this angel is talking about the fall of Babylon, it is very clear that what's, what, what's behind this is Jeremiah's description of the literal fall of Babylon that happens in Jeremiah 50 and 51. And what Jeremiah says there, I mean, a lot of this fits. And then there's the fall, the judgment of Tyre in Ezekiel 27. And a lot of this fits. It's this language of this great, what seemed to be invincible. It's fallen. It's fallen. It's been judged. Now, Babylon here is symbolic. Just like we've seen with Rome. Rome has been used symbolically of that evil that's opposed to God. Babylon is used the same way. Babylon, this is not the literal Babylon that Jeremiah was prophesying. Although so much of what Jeremiah describes as her fall in the Old Covenant is right here. Same way with Tyre, the language of Tyre in Ezekiel 27. So Babylon is symbolic. Babylon represents this evil world system, this outright naked paganism. It's everything that is corrupt and fallen in this world. And Babylon represents all of that. It's an evil, wicked city. But in the world, the world looks at it and it's a great city. In fact, it's what all the world wants. It's what all the world wants. So that's what Babylon represents here. And notice this verse, angel. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. All the nations have fallen in love with this this. This city, this, this Babylon, and, and, and they've done everything they, they, they can to have the luxury, to have all of that. And the sexual immorality here, I think, too, again, we've talked about this, playing into the sense of, of, of spiritual adultery. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Man, they have been made filthy rich. Since the fall, since the Garden of Eden, and the first entrance of this Babylon in Satan, in the fall, in the Garden of Eden, 
It has been playing out ever since, and she has had many different faces. She's come in many different forms. And she comes and she seduces, and there are people who have sold their souls to cozy up to this one. And worldly-wise, earthly-speaking, man, they've gotten filthy rich. And they participated. So that's the first voice from heaven. She's fallen. It's over. She's been judged. And then here comes another voice from heaven. Verse 4. And this other voice from heaven. Here comes this, this warning. Here comes this prophetic call. Come out of her, my people. We're going to come back to this in just a second. But there's this call. You need to come out of her, my people. You are not her people. You are my people. And I think the whole language of come out of her, in Jeremiah's day when he's prophesying, literally, you better get out of there. Because it's fallen. And when Babylon fell, it was no more. Where's Babylon today? No more. No more. So literally, Jeremiah, this call is issued in Jeremiah several times. Get out, get out, get out, get out. And here we see it in this last judgment, God saying to His people, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, as she paid out. She's getting what she deserves. She is getting what she deserves. God's not being unjust here. This is His justice. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like the measure. Give her like a, uh, give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since her heart, in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. No one can touch me. And if you read the description of Babylon and Jeremiah there, the same language. Babylon sits. Tyre in Ezekiel 27. In fact, they go so far as to say, who is like Tyre? There was no place like Tyre at the time. She sits as a queen. I'm no widow. Mourning I shall never see. And in verse 8 it says, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day. This invincible, this thing that the whole world worships, this whole city, this whole Babylon that the world just can't get enough of and runs to and is drunk with her immorality and is drunk, they drink, they drink to the point of stupor, to the point of being drunk with her passion. She falls in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. Why? For mighty is the Lord who has judged her. God judges her. Then, skip down to verse 21, because here's another voice from heaven. This is the third voice from heaven. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence. Just like this millstone sinks into the sea, never to rise again, Babylon's going to be thrown down. And then we get this this whole list here. She will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players, uh, musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. It's very strong in the Greek. Not, not, never, ever 
Is it going to be heard again? And the craftsmen of any craft will not not be found in you anymore. And the sound of the mill will not not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp will shine in you not not ever again. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you not not never again. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. All the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Babylon, this whole world system. And in verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who had been slain on earth. This is what we've seen. When the dragon makes war, what does he do? He goes after God's people. Revelation 13, the beast, right? Revelation 12, Revelation 13. What does the beast do? What does the Antichrist do? When all this climaxes in the end... It's like this growing storm since Revelation 6. It's brewing. It's growing. It's, it's, it, and it eventually, some, at some point in the future, it sort of climaxes in this great end, this great judgment, the Antichrist, the false prophet. But chapter 19, guess what? After all of this growing, brewing storm and the climax of the final judgment, guess what? The sun is out. The S-O-N. It's out. The judgment's over. It's complete. All of this unbelief, all of this Babylon, she's been judged. It's over. It's happened. Now look at the voices from the worldly voices. These these guys here are just, it's like a funeral dirge. In verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived lux- in uh, luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment. And they're going to say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, in a single hour your judgment has come. Swift. What seemed to be invincible, God brings down quickly. And verse 11, And the merchants of the earth, here's another worldly voice the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo and then there's this whole list of this costly cargo all of these things that the people have bought they've sold and bought and then verse 14 the fruit for which your soul long has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you never to be found again All of this costly cargo to the point to where the last thing we see in this list is human. The selling of human flesh. People got rich off this stuff. They got rich off off this. And and, and who, who made this possible? It's Babylon. Well, guess what? She's gone. Your wealth is gone. All of this is gone. You great kings of the earth, your power is gone. You merchants, all of that, it's gone. And then verse 15, the merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning. Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. And then guess what? That's not all. There's another worldly voice here. These are sea captains. And the shipmasters, the sea captains, and the seafaring men, sailors, and all who trade on the sea stood far off. You notice they're standing far off. She's burning. They're watching the smoke. They're seeing the torment. They're standing far off. Man, when things were good, they cozied up to her, didn't they? They cozied up to her and they drank 
and drank and drank. Now she's judged and they're astonished. They're amazed. And this is what they say. They say, what city was like the great city? And then they threw dust on their heads as they wept and they mourned and they cried out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth for in a single hour she has been laid waste. You see why this is a dirge? I mean, the heavenly voices, there's a prophetic warning. Get out of her. She's coming down. Come out of her. And then there's this, 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 this victory. Babylon's fallen. She's judged. She's no more. God has done this. And then these other voices, these worldly voices, you see why this is a dirge? I mean, they're mourning. They're wailing. Everything that they put their whole life, their trust in, everything that they had built their life in is gone. God judged it. It's over. What is it if you gain the whole world? And what? They lost their soul. In a single hour, it was gone. In verse 20, there's this break. It's a beautiful break. It's like in chapter, if you remember back in chapter 16, in the midst of all of that horror of the bold judgments, and then all of a sudden it's like Jesus broke through and said, I'm coming quickly. Remember that? It's like, hang on, I'm coming quickly. There's another one. It's like in the midst of this dirge, here comes as, as if we read this and we start to feel sorry for Babylon. We start to feel sorry for the unbelieving Babylon. And then it's almost like this reminder, verse 20. Oh no, hang on, I think this is another heavenly voice. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given your judgment to her. You know what she's done to you? Remember how this ended? For what was in her? The blood the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all those who she had slain. She's been judged and God has vindicated you. So don't you feel sorry for her. In fact, rejoice that the sovereign creator of this universe has judged her and it's over. It's over. I mean, this is quite a description of judgment, isn't it? But this is it. It's over. This is the final one. So the prophetic warning that's back in verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her. Get out of her. And notice this address to my people, God says. Get out of her. She's coming down. And your participation in her is destroying your soul. Get out. Get out of her. This is not your identity. You don't identify with her. Then what are you doing mixing company with her? What are you doing playing around with her? Come out of her. It's the language of separation, isn't it? Now, let me say this, because I want, I want you to kind of wet your finger. We're fixing to take a stroll through some of the New Testament. This is the language of separation. I also need to say this, just a word about worldliness. 
Because a lot of times we think of worldliness as, as how we look, where we, what we do, what we don't do, where we go, what, where we don't go, those kinds of things. But do you know in the New Testament, worldliness has more to do with the way we think? Worldliness has more to do with what our heart craves and what our heart trusts than the type of clothes we wear or the way we wear our hair. Worldliness has to do with the way we think and what our heart craves. And so when it comes to this issue of separation, there have been those throughout the history of the church who have said, yeah, we're going to come out of her, and guess what? We're going to the desert. And we're going to go live in the desert. We're going to get away from all this. We're going to go live in the mountains, and we're going to create our own little, the whole monastic movement was all about this, and guess what? They didn't realize they took the enemy with them. What was the enemy? The enemy was their own heart. So the whole idea of separation here, we, we, we can go crazy with the idea of separation and we can think, okay, what does it mean to come out of her now? Because listen, Babylon is now. It's not just future. Yeah, she's future. Yeah, future judgment. But guess what? If you think it's all future and whoever's alive then needs to come out of her and we're just going to skip on and live our lives the way we want to live and escape hell, and we're going to be okay, but oh gee, I hope those people in the future come out of her, then you've missed us something here. You've missed the point of this. You've missed the point of a lot of the message of the New Testament. Because a lot of the message of the New Testament is all about get out of this world. So how do I do that? Do I physically separate? I don't think so. I don't think so. So how do we get out of her? Let's start in John 18. A couple of things we need to understand about something our Lord told us. In John chapter 18, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And so John 18 verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Remember this? His own trial. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, Listen to this. My kingdom is not of what? My kingdom is not of Babylon. Pilate, guess what your kingdom is? It's all Babylon. You see a separation here? I mean, he's standing before Pilate. He's standing before an official of the Roman government. And he says to this official of the Roman government, my kingdom is not like your kingdom. Because my kingdom is not of this world. There's a separation there. Go back to John 15. Go back to John 15 just a second. John chapter 15, verse 18. This is what Jesus said. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were of the world, then guess what? The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, my kingdom's not of this world. You're in my kingdom. Guess what? You're not of this world. You're not of Babylon. 
But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, Whoever hates me hates my father also. I'm not of this world. You are not of this world. This world's not going to like you. John chapter 17, our Lord's Prayer. John chapter 17. This is what he prays, beginning in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. I'm speaking them in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. He's praying to the Father. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are what? You see it? The world hates them. Why? Because they're not of the world. What is that? Separation. But then notice what he prays. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Wait a minute, if we're not of the world, let's just get out of the world. What are we going to do? Go to Mars? No, no, Jesus says, I'm praying, don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You keep them from the evil one. You keep them from Babylon. You keep them from this great wicked city at the sway of the evil one. Preserve them in it. They're not of it. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says, sanctify them by your, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. I will say this. To the, to the amount, to the extent that you are in the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God, and, and, it, and it is a steady diet, is to, as to the extent that you're not in that Word, there's, there's an equal proportion to the extent that we are probably compromised if we're not in the Word of God. You follow me? In other words, I'm not in the Word of God, I'm probably compromised and may not even realize it. Do you see this separation? First John chapter two. We looked at this. Uh, we looked at this on Wednesday night. First John chapter two, verse fifteen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world's passing away. And it's going to be judged one day. It's going to be no more. This Babylon. All right, that's John. Let me read to you a couple of things from Peter here, uh, uh, from Paul. This is what he says to the Corinthians in chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. This is in 2 Corinthians. Let me get to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Don't hang out with them. Don't associate with them. But notice this caveat he gives here. Verse 10. 
Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Unbelievers or of the greedy swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You can't escape them. Guess what? You work with them. They're in your family. You see them every day when you go shopping. And Paul's saying, I'm not saying escape from the world, because if you're going to get out of their company, if you're going to get out of their physical presence, you would have to leave the world. And Paul says, that's impossible. But then what he does, he goes on and he says, listen, I'm talking about a believer that, that, that claims to be a believer that's doing this stuff. Now, now you separate yourself from them. In the context of that, though, Paul shows this separation coming out of her doesn't mean we go board ourselves up and escapism and escape the world. No, we can't. We're with them. We just don't think like them. We just don't act like they do. We don't go along with their jokes. We don't go to the places they go. We don't do the things they do. We don't talk the way they talk. You see? I don't think like they think. I may work with them, but I'm not of them. I'm not of them. I'm not thinking like them. They may be good friends of mine. But if they're unbelievers, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here it comes again in another context. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This used to be your identity. But guess what? Not any longer. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I do not want to be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Shall I take what Christ has bought with his own precious blood and join it to Babylon? Never! Never should I ever do that as a believer. Now I could go on and on. I could show you other places in different contexts where Paul, this idea of this separation, this is who you are, this is your identity, and, 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 and you're not to be like this. You're not to be like them. And, and it all boils down to this, the them there, the unbelievers, the evil one, all of this is, is Babylon, that great city that is wooing, that is out there. And in and, and Proverbs, Solomon talks about two women. He tells guys, he tells young men, he says, look, listen guys, you need to understand this in your life. There's two women vying for your affection. There's that one who wants you to come out at night with her, slip around the corner, go into her room and nobody ever sees and nobody ever knows and she's wooing you and she's saying, come on, come on. And then there's that other woman Who's calling you as well? And that other woman is wisdom. That, in, in short, in Proverbs, that other woman, I think, is Christ. 
And Christ is calling you to a completely different way of life. Don't you follow her. Because if you go into her room, she will destroy your soul. She will destroy your soul. How compromised are we? Again, I could go, there's five or six other passages here that I could go to to show you this idea here. And Paul, how compromised are we? I mean, that's a legitimate question, isn't it? Come out of her. No longer buy what she's selling. She's selling and selling and selling and selling. Stop buying it. In 2 Kings chapter 17, there's the fall of the northern kingdom. Assyria comes in, takes the northern kingdom. And there's what Assyria does is Assyria deports a lot of the Jews and brings a lot of people from foreign nations that they captured and they dump them in there. And they're sitting there trying to figure out, how do we live in this new land? So the Assyrians say, hey, why don't we send them a, let's send them a prophet down there. Let's send them one of the prophets of Israel down there and teach them some things about what the God who used to be here, what he's like. And so they try to do that and they try to, um, you know, assimilate and do all this stuff. And it ends up a big mess and... It's just horrible. That's where the Samaritans come from. But then, and this is a paraphrase at the very last verse of 2 Kings 17, it says this is the way they were living. They were fearing the Lord. They were fearing the Lord. And then just continued their own pagan practices. Fearing God. Not really. But at least outwardly. But inwardly, they just continued their own pagan practices. They just continued on. In other words, I'm going to take the Word of God and I'm going to bend it to my will. I'm going to take the Word of God and bend it to my ways. That kind of thinking is Babylon. I'm not going to submit to it. Don't ask me to submit to it. At the end of the day, Babylon says to God, you submit to me. And guess what happens in the end? In a single day, in a single hour, she's judged and it's over. When you get through with 2 Kings 17, you get to 18, and there's a, there's a godly king, Hezekiah. But here's the thing, Hezekiah starts off godly. And you read 18 and 19, and Hezekiah's doing reforms, he's tearing down the paganism, he's doing this great. And then you get to 20 and he gets sick. And when he gets sick, he gets worried. Isaiah comes to him and says, you know, he cries out, and Isaiah comes to him and says, don't worry, God's going to grant you some more time. And so Hezekiah responds to that in a sense of arrogance. And Hezekiah, there in chapter 20, this is what happens. This is interesting. Listen to this. The Babylonians show up. The Assyrians have destroyed the northern kingdom. We're probably 150 years before the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom. So this is what happens. Hezekiah Granted, a little more life. Hezekiah, godly king. I mean, he's told he's a godly king. I mean, we're, he does great things. But all of a sudden, the Babylonians show up. And you know what Hezekiah does? Hezekiah says, hey guys, come on, let me show you. Look, this is all our treasure. Let me take you into the sanctuary. Let me take you in here. Let me show you all. These are all our secrets. These are all our treasures. Look at all this stuff. And guess what the Babylonians were doing? 
taking notes. Because about 150 years later or so, guess what they do? They come get it all. They come get it all. What are you showing Babylon? What are you showing her in your mind and in your heart? What are you, what are you giving her access to? Trust me. She will take it all. And she will destroy your soul. Come out of her. Come out of her. Do you know who the perfect model for this is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect model for us to follow. Was He in the world? Yeah, in fact, they said, man, this guy runs around. He's, he, he eats with sinners. Remember all that language? Was He of the world? No. He died on a cross, was buried and raised the third day. And He stands and says to us, come out of her and come to Me. Come to Me. You see Him? He's a gracious Savior. All of us are compromised in one way or another because we're fallen, sinful, even though we're saved. And until we get to glory, all of us are going to face this. And what do I do? Let me tell you what I do. Just with David confessing his sin of Bathsheba, I confess my sin to God. And I've sinned against God. And I confess that sin. And then you know what I do? I get up and I just simply do the next right thing. And when it happens again, what do I do? Confess. Confess. Because Christ is a gracious Savior. And He's the perfect model. Come out of her. Come to Him. Let's pray. Father, these words that we find in the book of Revelation as it closes out the section of judgment, it's in one way it's haunting, in one way it's, it sort of sends chills up our spines, but in another way it's beautiful because you tell us here, rejoice over this. Father, sometimes we think, how can we be rejoicing over this judgment that's to come? Because there may be loved ones, there may be people that we're close to that were dear, dear people to us that, that have given their souls to Babylon and, and, and they may be judged with her. So, help us to lovingly, graciously be faithful with the Gospel. To warn in a loving way and to show a gracious Savior in Christ. 
It's not about us being condemning and judging and this world's already condemned. This world's already judged. It's not about us being hateful. It's not about us being arrogant and self-righteous. And It's about us out of broken hearts pleading with a lost and dying world to come to Christ, to come out of her. Help us do that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.